What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, Glenn. Yes. Pop quiz, hot shot. Oh, God, here it comes. You're walking down the street. Mm. You're in North America. Yes. You suddenly find yourself in desperate need of working dog equipment. Right. Where are you going to get it? Canine Dynamics. Canine Dynamics. Yeah. Is that where, if you were in North America, you would get all your working dog equipment? Absolutely. Without a doubt. Why? The best. All-round good guy. All-round good guy. Got Mac a point. He spells his name with a C and not a K. Oh, he must be cool. He must be really cool. All right. Next question. Yes. You're walking down the street. Mm. Same in, street? No. Okay. Now you're in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> you can find yourself in need yep. of dog equipment. Mm-hmm. Who are you calling? Oh. <sighs> Hang on a sec. Let me think about it. Is he a buffhead? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I'm, he's half a buffhead now. Yeah. Yeah. He's the fading buffhead. He's the fading buffhead. Yeah. Yep. Okay. It's given away a call. Old mate, Jason Furman. Yep. From Einzawiener. Einzawiener. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. Yep. One more question. Right. You are in Ashland, Virginia. Right. And that's very specific. (laughs) (laughs) You're walking down the street. Yep. Which street? Uh, Any of them. A street. Okay. And you meet a person Mm -hmm. whose dog's just being unruly. Their pet dog's causing them all kinds of problems. Yep. Who are you going to refer them on to? Oh, the one and only Kindred Canine. Kindred Canine. Kindred Canine. Who runs that? Melanie Benware. Uh Uh-huh. The Prez. The Prez of the ISCP. Yep. The one and only. So you would need working dog equipment in North America. Mm -hmm. Canine Canine Dynamics. Dynamics. Need any kind of dog gear in yep. Australia? Yep. Buffhead Central. Einswick Dog Quip. Yep. Need some pet dog in home. What does she call it? She calls it stay and train or play and train. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. All of that. Who are you calling? Kindred Canine. Melanie Benway. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Thank you very much for supporting the show. Love you. <laughs> Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio by my co-host, Glenn Cook. And joining us on the phone is Ben Lipinski. Are you in North Carolina still, Ben? I'm in North Carolina, yeah. So let's get into it. So we met, uh, when was that, 2016 or something? 16? Yeah, when I came over and did my decoy certification there. And you were instructing on it. And we're working for Jerry at the time. We hung out for a day and we've mentioned you a couple of times on the show when Jerry was here, we were talking about training bomb dogs and how that's kind of your thing for him. But let's go back to the start, mate. How is it that you came to be in that position where you're at uh, Tar Heel training bomb dogs and instructing on decoy certifications and running decoy training camps all over uh, North America? Go back right to the start for us. Yeah, just hearing you say it now, it's pretty crazy to think that that's what I'm doing still. I grew up in rural Minnesota in a hunting family and I would go out with my dad and we would do a lot of different bird hunting and he had dogs. We had springers and labs and pointers and, you know, I loved hunting. I still do. And 
when I hit about 15, I wanted to get my own dog. And I was old enough then that my parents thought I'd be responsible to get my own dog and take care of it and start training. And I really, really ran with that. I became pretty obsessed with that first dog and I ended up getting into different field trial competitions and hunt tests. And I was in my first one at 15, I think. And then running those until I was about just getting out of high school, 19. And I moved out to North Carolina to see Tar Heel. And I did a student program there. I did three months there and it's turned into about six years now. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, so when you were running field trials, what kind of dogs did you have then? Mm. Mostly labs that I, I liked doing the Retriever trials. I started off with a, a Brittany, so a pointing dog, and nice. I ran a couple of NAVDA events. So I said I got that first dog at 15. Well, I got that second dog at 16 right. and third dog at 17 and so on and so forth. Nice. Um, I ended up really liking the labs and doing the field trial work. And so um, and I, I was working in some kennels doing just uh, kennel work and obedience for some guys and got pretty into that for a while. Who pushed you into that? Like, who were your early mentors in, the, in that sort of stuff? Were you one-on-one training or were you kind of uh, searching online being a kid like that? You know, most 15-year-olds are pretty handy at finding that information these days. I didn't know any of it existed until I uh, just ran into a guy when I was out at a, like a game land working my first dog. And he kind of liked what he saw, I guess, and invited me out to a training group that was in the area. So I went and then a couple of weeks later, I found myself entered in my first trial. I didn't even know what I had to do. And then, uh, <laughs> I loved that training group and those guys were huge for me. They, you know, saw a kid that shared their passion and they weren't afraid to kind of let me into the old man group, I guess. Nice. Uh, I was the youngest one by probably 40 years. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I joined as many clubs in the area as I could so I could train every night after school. And so that was definitely like, I remember when we spoke, you were talking about how you intended really early on to be a dog trainer, full-time career as quickly as you possibly could. That you had that feeling when you were as young as 15, right? Yeah, probably like 16 years old. I knew like I was going to do something with dogs for sure. I just didn't know how to do it yet. Mm-hmm. Ben, I've got a question for you just off the cuff because we were having a conversation about this the other day while I was in a student group and we were talking about different types of Labradors, like the different colors. Did you have a color preference when you were working with working Labradors? You know, I didn't. I had a black, I had a yellow, but there is definitely that kind of, nobody likes the chocolates. I don't know how to say it. They're kind of like the duchies of the Malamar world. (laughs) Oh, mate. The brown lab people are going to be upset, but the duchy people are going to come after you now. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Well, you know, we all know they're, supposed to be the same but they're just not (laughs) it's interesting to hear you say that there was a bit of a debate going backwards and forwards about it and you can weigh in at any time over this one but over here we tend to see a lot of the blondes or the yellows whatever color you want to call them they tend to be dogs that are used for seeing eye dog applications and therefore they've got a predisposition to be bred to be a stable sort of subservient type of dog for that role. And there's people probably hearing me say this and going, oh, mate, you're you totally left a field. You're wrong with what you're saying. And I'm happy to be proven wrong with this, but it's experience and based on what I see. Again, you know, Australia, for most of you guys over in America and, and Europe and anybody listening in other countries that are connected, 
we don't have amazing access to dogs all over the world. You know, we got them and we've got semen coming in from different dogs and so forth, but we're sort of last on the list in the realm of great dogs. They tend to float around Europe and United States tend to get a lot of them. But my colleagues and I tend to see that a lot of the yellow Labradors tend to be more in that role, whereas the chocolates and the blacks tend to be better suited for explosive detection or detection work in general. There's a lot of good Labradors in America, like way more than probably any other breed. Mm. Um, It's been a little while since I've looked into the numbers as much, but I know in like 2017, there was like 20,000 entrances for master hunter tests through the AKC. So that only is beaten out by like agility trials and in agility trials, people are entering, you know, their same dog five times a day. So, you know, a lot of those entries might be the same dog repeated, but that's still at dwarfs anything in protection sports. So there's a lot of good Labradors in this country. But what I will say is there's definitely something to do with color and other genetic attributes. Mm. Like there's definitely some linkage going on there. I'm not a expert on that matter at all, but just in experience of what you see, it it has to be true because so in like a, in an AKC field trial, there's like one guy walks away the winner, right. And everybody else kind of goes home with their tail between their legs. And there's just way more black labs winning those trials Mm. and then yellows and then very few chocolates at least from what I remember, you know, I'm not as in that field now, but um, it's definitely dominated by the blacks and the yellows. Yeah, it's something that there's heaps of anecdotal evidence on, right? Is that it's very rare to see a working or a successful brown lab. But you had one, didn't you, Glenn? Yeah, yeah she was brilliant. She was yeah. the best explosive detection dog we had. That was a brown lab, brown, right? chocolate yeah, lab. Yeah, amazing dog. Yeah, so I guess it's not its not like it can't happen, but, but it's the unicorn. Rare. I mean, look, there's unicorns in all breeds, and you and I have talked about this till the cows come home, mm. is that, you know, like we talk about dogs like yeah. Dobermans that we don't have a lot of faith just, in as a just, working role. I've had enough of being attacked <laughs> by people, so <laughs> I'm not going to talk about that anymore. I heard that. I heard about that. Yeah. Oh, mate, you should see my DMs. People blowing up at me. Yeah. Uh, so, oh, man. I know, right? But I'm not well, worried because it's not like they can send like, their dogs you know, to bite me. <laughs> yeah in police work you know we don't really discriminate right whatever dog works is the dog that we pick absolutely there's a lot of different labs that work really well for what i do now you know as like bomb dogs and we don't care but i think one of the reasons that those like chocolates and even the yellows sometimes get a little bit of a bad rap against their black counterparts would be like when there's only one winner your judging is relative to the competition. So even Mm -hmm. if our two dogs perform the same thing and they perform the exact same task, but mine does it, you know, my black dog does it a little bit smoother, a little bit cleaner. And, you know, he doesn't whine at all at the line. You know, he's not mouthy on the bird. I'm going to win. I'm going to beat you. We perform the same task, but you know, my dog has a little bit better traits in like vocalization or steadiness that you know, maybe that chocolate dog didn't have. Mm. So that black one tends to come out the winner, right? Now in police work, we we couldn't care less if that dog is vocal or, you know, a little unsteady, like, you know, a little, a little twitchy, right? Because that just makes a more intense, mm-hmm. you know, bomb detection dog. We're just looking for something that's crazy. And, you know, if he barks for the ball, like that's just a good dog now. So it's, it was a little different for me early on. I'm like, oh, gosh, that's annoying. Like, listen to these dogs barking all the time. Like, when I was doing labs, we wouldn't tolerate a peep. And uh, 
you know, now it's like we're encouraging it. Yeah, that's a really good point, mate. And it does tie into what Glenn was saying as well about the seeing eye dogs being mostly the yellow mm. and that it, they're, they're after that Very stability. calm, very quiet. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that, that's an interesting side of conversation. Yeah, well, just yeah. getting an opportunity to talk to a lab man and it only the conversation only really came up in the last couple of days. So I just thought, hmm, that's an interesting point, something that I never really put much value into because I hadn't really thought about it much. But I totally agree with you and I'm, you know, I can't speak for Pat, but I'm sure he agrees as well, is that whatever dog is best for the role is the best dog. There's always been good supportive evidence for that because, you know, I've spoken to people recently where they're saying, oh, you know, I'm going to use Kelpies for explosive detection. And I said, why Kelpies? And they're going, oh, because they're great dogs. And I said, well, we've got the luxury of thousands of rescue dogs at the moment. And I said, any one of those dogs could be, you know, your next great detection dog. What specifically is it about Kelpies that you think is going to be a world beater in training the next detection dog? Not to say that it can't be. I don't know. I don't have enough stake in Kelpies to know. You know, other people in military roles and so forth have told me that they've used a lot of Kelpies and they've really shone through in the list of dogs that they've been using. So I'm not going to dispute that. If anybody can come to me with a great working dog, I don't care if it's got three legs and it can still do the job. If we're going to nibble on this shit sandwich, we may as well have a great big bite of it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think that Kelpie thing sometimes comes from, uh, especially in the Australian Army, is there have been a couple of phenomenal bomb dogs that yep. were Kelpies. And so there's an imprinting on a lot of people that would say they're excellent, but it's really because of the, so the it's success. So a bit of a bias on Yeah, a there's just because of the success mm. of a particular dog. I thought that might be the case. And, and also I think that, you know, Kelpies are stalkers, not hunters. So mm. like it's, it's unusual for them to want to hunt like mm. that. And so, but there were a couple that – I know of that were phenomenal and it was just by chance and you know they were both rescues actually so who even knows what what they really were they look like kelpies you know but i've seen some phenomenal dobermans before too that's right so yeah. hey let's go back to you ben because uh i'd like to put <laughs> yeah, some heat yeah. onto you yes in that probably excluding jerry you'd be amongst one of the people that we've had on the show who's had their hands on the most police dogs right so you just said something about Mouths versus duchies. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I'd like hey, you to- I don't mind taking any heat. <laughs> so you take some of the heat on that and tell us because it was a topic that came up and I said that they're essentially the same thing. They're a male with stripes and that there really is, in my experience, I see more genetic variants in bloodlines than I do really in the breeds. But you can go ahead and take some of the heat on this. What's your experience with that? Well, again, I'm not an expert on genes or really on breeding. But just from what I see, we agree. It's like, it's the same dog. There's not a whole lot of difference between a, a Dutchie and a Malinois, but that color difference, you get a lot of dogs that are a little neurotic. You get a lot of dogs with those issues that get a little annoying. You know, if you're going to like own or handle that dog, you know, excessive spinning, barking, biting their bucket. I can't tell you how many Dutchies destroy kennels. You know, some of those behaviors we love the dog for, you know, because they're drivey and they're relentless and you know, we want them, but when you have, you know, a whole bunch of mouths and duchies and you're going to go through and make generalizations, like some of those striped dogs are going to be a little bit more neurotic. And that's just what we tend to see. You can tell I'm a big Malinois guy. <laughs> but I think you're spot on. You hit the nail on the head when you say that some of those neurotic behaviors we accept because it accompanies drives or traits that we really do like. And so we say, well, fuck, we'll put up with that. It's not ideal, but it's not a deal breaker for us because that obsessive crushing of the bucket often will lead to an obsessive 
hunt in order to earn something they can crush and destroy. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, just as a generalization, I see more of those neurotic tendencies out of the duchies and you see a little bit less in some of your Malinois, but they both are, you know, great for the work. So we don't discriminate, but if you're going to, you know, piss some people off, like, yeah, there's a lot more of that out of the duchies. <laughs> okay. You can have that. Hey, let's get back to your yeah. story. <laughs> <I> think- <laughs> So you, uh, would you say you were 19 years old, you're doing field trials, you got a new dog every year, getting more experienced in that. You're in every club you yep. can get your hands on. How is it that you came to end up at Tar Hill? Like, what was it about there that stood out to you? Why did you choose that as a school? Okay. So around that time of like 18, 19 years old, I uh, was ready to make training hunting dogs my career path. And I was working for some different kennels. And, you know, I was just thinking a lot about the different things that we train working dogs for. And I started to think a lot about police dogs. And at that time, it really didn't make sense to me. I started to think like, okay, a lab retrieving a bird just seems right. It makes sense. They want to do it. You bring one out, they, they chase it, they grab it, they bring it back to you. It's very natural. And it made sense to me how a dog wants to find bombs and bite bad guys didn't make any sense to me. So I, uh, took it upon myself to figure, figure that out a little bit. And, uh, I went on some ride alongs and went to some local police dog training groups and I got bit by the police dog bug literally. And, uh, (laughs) I started looking for places that did what I wanted to do, you know, train those types of dogs. And I just could kind of tell that the trainers around me in Minnesota at that time, like weren't exactly what I was looking for. So I did, I ended up finding Tar Heel, the way everybody does, found it online. And I showed up a couple weeks later and I did a three month program there. I worked with Sean a lot. And uh, that's Sean Siggins here, if you guys don't know. Mm-hmm. And um, I stuck around and did an a internship after my student program. And then by the time I was 20 years old or 19 years old, I had a job working for Jerry full time. And uh, it's been almost six years now. Nice. So can you tell us a little bit about like, not to do a, an ad for Tar Hill, but it is a place I respect a lot. And it is a place that I usually find myself referring yeah. people to go to. And we don't have anything similar in Australia. Mm-hmm. There isn't a school you can go to for six months and live there. Or I think that there's even bespoke courses. Like you said, you did three, but there's people that do six, right? And live there and be immersed in dog training. Yep. What does that look like as a day to day as a student? Yeah. So Target is a pretty unique place. We're a dog training school, and we're going to teach you the theory of training dogs, some of the principles of training dogs that we adhere to. And we're going to give you lots of different lectures on those topics and, you know, give you a little bit of a formal education that some people lack when they start out in dogs. But most importantly, we're also a, you know, full service police canine and military working dog training kennel. And, uh, the trainers here were training those dogs every day. So as part of that student program, you're going to get your hands on all of those dogs and we're going to teach you to train those dogs and you're going to be a part of it with us every day. So, you know, as a trainer here now, like I'm a little bit more like a, a coach taking the students and, you know, giving them lecture and the information that they need to understand what we're doing. And then we're going out every day and putting our hands on those dogs and actually training them because you know, if I just taught you what to do all day long and I didn't go out and train the dogs that I'm training for 
different military contracts. Like we wouldn't sell those dogs. And then the other half of our business would suffer. So we're, you know, we're both a, a training business and a school. And it's a pretty unique experience where you're going to come. And at the end of six months, like you helped with, been a big help with the training of actual police dogs, actual military working dogs that are going to go out into service. And if you're here for six months, you're going to be, you're going to see that whole process all the way through. And you're going to see a bunch of dogs get started and get finished in whatever their job is going to be, whether that's a narcotics dog or a bomb dog. And the trainers here, as well as Jerry, the owner, we're teaching those students and taking them out with us each day to help us train the dogs that we're training for different contracts. It's interesting because I remember, I'm not sure if it was you or Jerry I was talking to one day talking about how, what an adult learning environment it is and that you've had a few people kind of shocked when they get there because no one's, you know, they come say straight out of high school and if they don't have that self-motivation like you did, no one cares whether you turn up to class or not, right? Like you've paid your fee. There's no one harassing you. You're not going to get in trouble. You're not going to get sent to the principal's office and that can be a bit of a culture shock to some of the students you get there. Oh, for sure. It's it's a very atypical learning environment because we're a business. We're a business that trains dogs, you know, to find bombs and to bite people. So, you know, I'm not going to go wake you up or call you and, you know, ask why you weren't showing up to class. If you don't want to come and learn, like, that's your thing. Like, you paid all this money for the schooling. I would expect you to want to come out and do it. But, you know, I'm not going to beg people to come out and learn. There's a lot of people that are extremely motivated and they're going to show up and we're going to put our time into those people and you really get out of it, whatever you put in. Right. So you could come and you could do six months and show up every day, but always kind of be a wallflower and hang back. And, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to teach to everybody, but if you don't want to do a certain thing or you don't want to work a certain dog, I'm not going to force anybody to do that, but I always encourage people to, you know, volunteer and to try and work those difficult dogs and help me with them because that's where you're going to learn a lot. And when I went to school there, like, well, I would never miss a day for any reason. And I could only do three months, not six. So I was going to really immerse myself in that program and, you know, bug the trainers until, you know, I really felt like I was understanding what we were doing. And I spent a lot of time with Sean and we would hang out and train dogs, you know, during work and after work and on the weekends and go to club. Like all our students can come to our sport club on the weekends and come out and learn and be a part of it. They can decoy a little bit if they want to. So yeah, you know, if you're 18 coming right from high school or even some of them, some of them are coming from like a, a college environment where um, things are a lot more structured, like, Hey, you're going to go to this class and then the bell's going to ring and you're going to go to this class. Like, and then we're going to send you to lunch. Like, it might not be exactly like that, right? We're going to, we're going to be training all day long. And if you feel like sleeping in and not coming, like that's your choice, but you're going to pay for it. And those aren't going to be the people that we're going to recommend for positions after they graduate, you know? Just on that point, you talked about the costs involved. What's a typical cost involved for something like a six month course? Yeah, it's like close to $15,000 to come to school. And for me, that was a lot of money. You know, I paid for, you know, my three month program out of pocket and I wasn't going to let any of that money go to waste. Yeah. For a lot of people, that's a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah. So it's always amazing to me, the ones, the, the people that show up and they show up, but they don't really show up. You know, they're not that motivated. Mm. I think we get that everywhere in dogs, right? And it's one of the things 
we talk about, we always want dogs with that are high drive. We talk about, you know, from the talent code, we talk about ignition, that desire from within to achieve. And I think sometimes we see that in students all over the world, when you, whether, whether you're teaching seminars like me or, or full courses like Glenn does here, there's sometimes people who need to be spoon fed information. And you almost want to say to those people like, hey, I have to do that because that's what we're here to do. Like, that's the job. I'm the teacher. You're the student. I'm going to give you the information. But, you know, you're not a dog that I am going to employ in mm. the field, right? Yep. Like, you're a dog that I will return to the owner with a sit and a loose leash walk because that was what we've been told we have to achieve. But you're not a dog I'm going to send out to hunt because you don't have that self, uh, yeah, that self-determination. I mm. think as a student in everything – Certainly I feel this way and I'd, and I'll bet, you know, I'd, I'd say it's why you've been so successful at Tahill Ben is because Sean Siggins probably saw exactly that in you where the day ends at five o'clock and he wants to go home and you're like, Hey, no, I want more information out of you. Yep. Yeah. And then I remember you saying like that you were a skinny kid when you arrived there and put on a bunch of weight, like good weight because you're then Sean's like, well, I'm going to the yeah. gym. So you're like, well, I'm coming too. Like this is, I I'm here to suck as much knowledge out of like, out of you as I can. And I always want to point out like, that's usually the common denominator with successful people mm. is that desire to get the information rather than be given the information. Well, that's exactly what we're looking for at work as well is when we've got student courses on and people want opportunities for employment. My main thing that I say to them is make yourself useful. You know, if you're a useful person, if you're a go-getter, then eyes are going to start looking at you. But if you want to be that person that's spoon-fed and given everything, then you're hitting the bottom of the list straight away. And yeah. that, that's just a fact. That's what, you know, people who own businesses or run clubs or anything, or you know, they're looking for people who aren't looking at the clock or looking to take every weekend off or everything like that. That's not the sort of person you want to employ. Yeah. And, you know, I was going to say when, um, you know, when other business owners and dog trainers call us looking for, you know, Hey, do you have anyone that might be good as a, a hire for my business? Like we're looking to employ someone and, you know, whether that's just a, you know, someone for their kennel staff as a starting out position or a trainer, the first thing, like, I just talked to Jerry about this today. Like the first thing we usually talk about is, uh, you know, who's like a good person, you know, who's responsible and who's motivated, who's showing up. Because those are usually the good dog trainers. Like if you're motivated, we're going to teach everyone the information, but those, those responsible and motivated people who really take it upon themselves to get the most out of it, those are going to be good employees later because they, you know, they want to be there. And um, that's usually the first thing we're looking at is, you know, who's a good person who shows up. Mm. One thing I'm really curious about, mate, is all your police and military dog type training has been from Tar Hill and, you know, you were trained there, you interned there, you worked there and now you teach there. How much evolution have you seen in the years you've been there since like as a student from what you were taught versus what you're now teaching and how much like freedom of expression do you have in your day-to-day -day job? You know, like in your training of the bomb dogs there, you know, like how much oversight is there or how much freedom do you have to do things the way you might like? One of the biggest draws to Tar Heel for me is the evolution of it because it is constantly changing both in the dogs that we train, you know, what we do, what we take on the different projects that we get into and, you know, how we teach. So, uh, most of my, most of my training and experience comes from there from Sean and Jerry, but 
you know, they've also given me tons of opportunities to go to different classes and seminars and conferences and listen to a lot of these other people and, you know, people like you guys and, you know, Pat Nolan and a lot of different people that I've been able to go out and learn from. And we're always taking that information back and just reteaching it, you know, and that's, that's a really good thing is we're always trying to teach new information and not just get the same thing. So, I mean, if you came to Tar Heel 10 years ago and you came to Tar Heel today, you're probably going to see a very different thing. You're going to experience a very different program. And that shouldn't upset anybody who came through, you know, a few years ago, that's just us getting better as well. So, you know, one of my favorite things about my job there is I do have a lot of freedom to train the way I want and structure my day and my week and how I work the dogs. I get to decide a lot of that myself because, you know, Jerry has a lot of trust in what I can do and the product that gets put out. And as long as we keep, you know, putting out a good product and getting to the end result, like if I want to take some different training routes, take some liberties along the way, like he's completely fine with that. It's not, you know, Hey, this is the only approach and this is how we're going to do it. And that's how you're going to work for me. It's part of why he, you know, I think why he likes me as an employee is I can problem solve and not come to him with every little problem that comes up. Yeah, that's cool. Mm. And like I say, I'm not trying to just run an ad for Tar Heel, but I think it's very interesting because you are kind of a, you are a product of their, you know what I mean? Like that's where yep. the majority of your training has come from. So it really does feed into you as a person. Hey, tell us about your journey with your own dog in PSA. Cause that, that's been really interesting for me to watch. I, I don't want to say like, call myself like a fangirl, but I do really enjoy watching you, you train. And your journey with your dog Fury has been impressive to say the least. So tell us about how you got him and your journey with him through the levels as quickly as you have. Okay. Well, he was like an 11 month old import came in with a shipment of 15 dogs. And I was towards the end of that student program and I was just ready for a dog. At that time, I didn't want to raise a puppy. Puppies to me are such a, you know, such a risk. Mm -hmm. And I didn't feel ready to give that puppy everything it needed. I didn't feel confident enough in putting in and doing all the right things and not making any of the mistakes. So I wanted to get a dog that was a little bit older and, you know, maybe already bit pretty good and had, you know, some of the traits that I wanted instead of developing those out of a puppy. Mm -hmm. And Fury was a like 11 month old Malinois with a lot of drive and a lot of power. You know, he was fast and he came in and he, and he hit pretty hard, kind of made us all open our eyes a little bit. And I started spending a couple of days with the dog and I got Sean to look at the dog and he liked him. And then the department came and they were going to buy the dog. So I kind of had to put my chips on the table and, you know, fork over the money for him. So I ended up buying him just after a few days after he came in in order to keep him out of a department's hands. Okay. And, uh, so he was just like a, you know, I tell people he wasn't anything crazy special. He was just a, you know, an average 11 month old green dog that we got in. And, uh, I was fortunate to stay at Tar Heel and keep training. So now what you see is a product of just relentless training week in and week out and good help around me. So, you know, we did, by the time we started the trial, we did move through all of our levels pretty smoothly, at least on trial day. You know, it's not always smooth in between, mm. but we, you know, I was fortunate enough to go from my PDC to my two without fail and got all of those titles and then went on to win level two nationals in 2018 with them. And 
I just showed for the first time in the level threes a couple months ago, and we had our first our first failure on the field, which uh, was good. It was it was good to you know see what everybody's talking about with how hard it is to compete in the level threes <laughs> in PSA. Yeah, you know I've been on the field for so many as a decoy that uh, you know handling was uh, it was fun for me, and uh, I'm excited. I'm doing it again next weekend in Jersey, trying nice. to show for the three again. So. Nice. We actually, like in our club here, we use your PDC as like the demo we show people. That's in our little Facebook group. I, I posted that after you did it. And I was like, this is what a PDC looks like. <laughs> or, oh, thank or you. <laughs> could look like. Because I think you almost got full points in that, right? Yeah, it was pretty close. Yeah. And I think it, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I feel like, again, I am fanning a little bit here, but it was this that you, when you recalled him, I think that you just had like too long a pause between saying his name and giving the recall that the judge stung you for a double command, even though it was like, so nothing actually, it was a perfect run, except that you just gave a slightly too big a pause and that they were like, oh, there, we can get a point off of him there. Am I right? Or am I imagining yep. that? Yeah, it, that was it. That was the only point off. It was supposed to be just Fury Fulligan. And I kind of went Fury, Fulligan. So they counted it as like a, a double command. And, uh, oh, well, that was, fuck that you. Was where they took, to that was where they point. took one. Uh, Daryl Ritchie. Yeah, I, was gonna, I wasn't going to out him, but yeah. <laughs> yeah right. Because uh, you can't have a perfect score. God forbid. No, no. A while ago when Pat was talking about having you on the show, I've heard your name mentioned before, but I didn't really know much about you. You know, like we've had people say to us before, oh, you know, you interview a lot of people who are well-known in the dog industry, but you don't really interview people that, you know, like have gone into the industry and done well and sort of had a success story. And that's what Pat was saying to me. I've gone over and seen this guy. He's legit, you know, like he's got a beautiful obedience routine. He's He understands the dynamics of taking dogs from young ages and training up for explosives and for law enforcement. He does extensive work at Tar Hill. And he said, you know, he's the sort of guy that, you know, he's come from uh, a background where he's come in as a student and worked his way through. So interesting for us to have a backstory on you, Ben, to let people know that if you work hard and you put your your back into it and, you know, you show some tenacity and some talent, then you start making headway into the, the world. And this is how you create your own opportunities. Yeah, I'm happy to be here talking to you guys today. It's pretty crazy for me still. Like, I mean, I've been, I've been training dogs about 10 years now and it's still really exciting to get to do anything new. And I just, I just hope I can keep that going until I, uh, until they put me in the ground. <laughs> hey, so let me blow more smoke up your ass. So I think you were the youngest PSA certified decoy, right? At that time, I think so. Is it, oh, so has somebody been younger got through since? There's been some 18 year olds, but at that time, you know, I think I was the youngest at 19, but I think yeah. there's been some 18 year olds in history. And, uh, yeah, I, uh, I think I might've been one of the youngest nationals winners as well, but I don't know. I try not to pay attention to that part too much anymore because, you know, you're always looking for some other, Oh, I'm special in this way because I was young and it it doesn't matter. You train around people and you don't want to just be good because you're, you know, always young and good. So it's kind of impressive. I just want to be good. Um, and, not have that kind of caveat attached to it of he's always, oh, he's really good for a young guy. Sure. Sure. Want to be good. Yeah. I get that. I understand. Hey Ben, just out of curiosity, what's the most memorable thing that keeps coming back to you in 
your training career? I guess what I'm asking is what's your best lesson? What do you keep coming back to? And what do you try and advise other people on? What's your go-to advice? Oof. You got to kind of keep grinding and keep showing up because it's easy to be motivated when something exciting is happening. But at the end of the day, like some days I don't want to go into work and, and train and get bit and you got to keep doing it and keep finding ways to reinvigorate your passion. And uh, if you do that, if you keep showing up and keep grinding, success will keep coming and then that it'll self-fulfill and you'll keep feeling motivated. So mm. you can't always be waiting for all the conditions to be right. Sometimes you just got to keep showing up and doing it. Like I'll tell the students a lot, like some of the secrets to my success uh, in training police dogs and such is just relentless. I think I'm just willing to put in more reps than someone else. And sometimes I'm like, I don't know how we're going to get through this, but we're going to keep trying and hopefully we will. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's sage advice. I mean, even Einstein was quoted at one stage saying he doesn't believe that he's smarter than the average person. He just sticks with problems longer. Yeah. You got to stick it out. Mm. Mate, as a decoy, what's some of the biggest challenges that you're facing at the moment? And I'm curious whether you, as PSA is growing, like obviously let's pretend 2020 didn't exist, right? Like imagine last year when, when yeah. things was humming along. With the speed at which PSA is growing, what's some of the big challenges you're finding as a decoy? And, and with people crossing over from Mondio and Frenchering, how's that affected the way you're training decoys for PSA and, and the way you might approach decoying for PSA? I think with uh, PSA, you know, you have to keep working at it. Like you have to keep putting in the reps on dogs and workouts. Too many guys, they go through and they might even get certified by Sean, but then they're not working, you know, quality dogs or they're not working hard at improving their skills and they kind of fall off the radar a little bit. Like mm -hmm. um, I was just talking to Sean Edwards about that today. He stopped in at Tar Heel. He had a seminar in the area and, you know, some people show up to his schools and they're really, you know, excited and motivated. And then the next time they're like, Oh, you know, I'm, I've got this now mm -hmm. after just like one time. And sometimes in anything like with the certifications, like they get certified and then they think they've got this. So you, know, you gotta be, you gotta stay around quality people. And I'm fortunate enough to be around Sean Siggins and Jerry on the daily. So I've always got those really intense motivating forces around me to keep me working at it. And for me, a big part of it is I'm not a big guy. So I keep my workouts up, try and keep my conditioning and my strength up pretty high so that I can move some of those bigger, powerful dogs a little bit more. That was a big thing for me going into nationals last year. I was working out really hard, trying to be a little bit more explosive, mm -hmm. um, a little bit faster. That point that you just made, I've got this. I love seeing people that come to seminars or, you know, they've turned up on the day and that's the attitude they've got. Like, I've got this. And you just think, you've got level one, bro. You know, <laughs> there's there's 99 more to go. Yeah, and yeah. Because, you know, like when you're on a field with great people and you've got cooperative dogs, it's easy to look good and it's easy to feel good and it, you've got a good flow state going on with what you're doing. And, you know, it's nice. It's good to encourage people that when you've got a perfect environment, this is how it's going to go. But again, linking back to what you said earlier, it doesn't always go your way. And when you lose that big hype from going to the seminars and you've got a great bunch of people around you, you know, and then there's a few people and you've got to work out problems yourself, then you realize, oh, shit, I haven't got this. 
Not yet. I've still got all the other levels to pass through. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's just part of the journey that most people are finding that they, when they're going through their training regime and learning how to become a decoy or how to become a detection trainer or how to learn anything really, I find it's actually enjoyable sometimes to problem solve. And it's very frustrating as well, but it's, you know, you feel that by the time you you leap through the problem and you get to the, the solution, you just think, oh, thank God that happened, you know, like, but it's also a breakthrough. I'm speaking for myself, I guess, and colleagues that I've spoken to, but I find that a part of the enjoyable journey. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if you're on the decoy side, if you're, you know, working hard and you're comfortable with the dogs around you, that mm. just might just mean you're comfortable with the dogs around you. Yep. Get out and catch some other people's dogs, you know, because if you are fortunate enough to be a trial decoy and you come out and you got to catch my dog, like I know he's not an easy dog to catch. He takes out a lot of people that are really good and very qualified to be decoying, but he is fast and he puts all his feet into your body. And if you're not prepared or you're used, not used to a dog like that, you know, you're just used to you know, the same dogs that you catch every week that have a nice clean entry or they're, you know, a little bit slower or, you know, you're not used to that fast leg dog or whatever it is. Like you have to be ready as a trial decoy. You have to be ready for whatever's coming down the field at you and you can't ease up and you can't show it a different picture. You got to be ready to catch whatever's mm. coming. Yeah. That's something that hits home for me, you know, because we have our club and mostly that's the dogs that I'm working and, and I know those dogs really well. Yeah. I know exactly what I'm doing. I could catch them with my eyes shut because I've developed them from puppies, mm -hmm. but that's why I travel with my bite suit. Even when I, I know there's very little chance of me using it, I still bring it because of exactly that. I just trying to get more hands on more dogs. And that's one of the things I'm so jealous of people in, in that position that have access to 20 new dogs every six weeks or whatever that they're training. You know what I mean? Is, is mm -hmm. that general of mm. of what and what it is like to work a new dog and i actually get fucking terrified like you know if i decoy a trial here in australia i'm like ah i know this this is i've done this, this is my is dog. All, i've worked all these dogs this is easy but the, every trial i've decoyed in the states i've shit my pants because i'm like i don't know any of these well, dogs. You, you just don't have a callus to those dogs yeah well, i just have no idea where they're gonna go i don't know how yep. it's gonna go and you know you stick to the pattern and you do what you're taught and you, you you do your best but it's for me that i think you you hit the nail on the head is that getting your hands on as many dogs as you possibly can and putting yourself outside of your comfort zone is so diff so important but mm. also so difficult on that note of putting yourself outside your comfort zone, I, I'd like to mention something that I did uh, last weekend. I went out to be a part of the new American Schutzen Sport. Um, oh, cool! They had their first help. They had their first helper certification in Maryland, and you know they had um, Yori. I always mess up saying his name because he's he's Dutch. Yori Veth Beef, something like that. How dare you and, insult uh, Dutch people? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so, sorry, Yori. Um, but they had him and uh, you know several other really quality instructors putting that event on, and you know trying to get people certified to be helpers in the new American Schutzen sport, which is under the same umbrella as PSA. So I thought, like, okay, like I need to. I need to go and be a part of this. I need to support it. And what an opportunity to learn, you know, sleeve work from some guys who are really, really quality at it. And that was two days of, I didn't know how many ways there was to hold a sleeve, you know, <laughs> and I, I do, I do this every day, working dogs, grips and catching dogs in the suit. But I learned a lot just on sleeve presentation and helper work over those two days. And, you know, it might be something I do a little bit more of in the future. I was able to certify as a Schutzen helper now too. 
even though I don't uh, necessarily train for that every day. Yeah, that's fascinating to hear you say that. During my younger days, I spent a long time and a lot of time catching hundreds of dogs at our training center, you know, throughout probably a good 10 to 15 year range. And it was predominantly sleeves. It wasn't suits back then. One of the interesting things that I found was that even the difference between how a Rottweiler comes in, how a Shepherd comes in, and how Mal comes in was all differences on how you had to present the sleeve. And I mean, I'm just thinking, oh, we just hold it one way, but there's not because Roddy's pitch one way, Shepherd's pitch another, and Mal's come straight over the top and defy everything else that you're doing. You think, holy shit, you know, like I've got to be prepared for this dog. And then you'll get those unicorn dogs that will do, do something completely bizarre. So yeah, it is. It's quite a skill set that you've got to learn on the fly. Yeah, absolutely. Ben, the, the last thing I wanted to bring up with you, when Jerry, uh, Jerry was on the show recently with Cameron Ford, we were talking about differences in detection training techniques. I don't know if you heard that. And we were talking about markers and, and it was really, a, you know, it was an interesting conversation to realize that while there's very subtle differences in the way that those guys work, it, it really is very, very overwhelmingly similar, especially in the starting phase. But Jerry said that, you know, with the bomb dogs that you're training, you are using markers and rewarding away from the source, as you'd expect with the bomb dogs. So if you did listen to that episode, can you sort of fill us in on where you implement that? Because when Jerry said that, I was like, oh, well, I'd like to hear what Ben does. And he goes, we have to talk to Ben. So here we are. I'm mm. not, I am. That's right. Yeah, I remember that. Mm. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, he mentioned that. So I did go and listen to it. And listening to both Jerry and Cameron Ford, who I, I listened to Cameron's podcast and Sorry, Jerry, I don't listen to yours enough, but I hear you every day. So, um, you know, I respect both of those guys a lot. So it's exciting to kind of weigh in on it. But, um, you know, with uh, I do all the bomb dogs at Tar Heel, at least these days. That's kind of what I've fallen into. And I hold a few military contracts that I'm training dogs for. And for some of those, you know, you're training what they want out of a, a contract out of a statement of work so they're they have something written like the dog has to do this 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 and this and then i can train however i want to get there but i have to get the desired result that i want and some of those you know require um, the dog to have a marker to come off odor and be rewarded at the handler and from having jerry on you guys know we tend to be mostly a uh, you know reward at source direct reward deferred final response kind of training place so I'll tell you a little bit about like what I, how I'm training that out of the, the bomb dogs right now is um, I'm still sticking with our direct reward system and teaching the dogs to hunt and hunt for odor and then doing the final response, typically using the boxes and direct rewarding at source. But then I also, you know, teach a very strong terminal marker in obedience. And then I just bring that into detection pretty late in towards the end. And it's really just kind of, to have different reward delivery options to be able to walk up and reward the dog at source. And, you know, I'll use a verbal marker to help hold the dog at source and let them know that they're correct while I move to the dog and reward them. And then another one to release them back to me. And I want to have both of those options, but, you know, after tinkering around with it for a little while, I found at least for me using a indirect training system didn't get me the result that I wanted but having an indirect reward delivery uh, at the end gave me what I wanted and still kind of kept me in the training path that I'm a little bit more comfortable with mm -hmm. of the direct reward system that we do at Tar Heel. That's interesting. So it really sounds like you fall almost 
you know, when if Drew was on one end of the spectrum and Cameron was on the other, it sounds like you fall almost perfectly in the center mm. in those bomb dogs, in that you still the start the exact same way, but then you maintain the ability to reward still at the source as well as come away. And that was what I was really interested in was how you load that. And you say you do it in, in obedience, right? So that those markers, by the time your uh, bomb dog is indicating on odor, the marker that you use for the very first time as a release to an indirect reward that the handler has, he's heard many, many times from leaving a sit or a down or heel position or something yep. like that. Yeah. And, I heard that you know, before. There might be <laughs> there might be mild confusion the first time you do it off odor because that dog has such a strong reward history at source, but it, it does not take much. Like, you know, a couple of repetitions to get the dog flying back on the marker and still having enough reward history at source for them to stay very stable there. And I, I know I tinkered with implementing that at different points in the training. I did a couple of young labs where I taught them entirely indirectly and did like every video of a dog going over to a tube and putting the nose in the tube and clicking and the dog comes back and eats food. And mm -hmm. for me now, I know, I know fully well that that is a system of training detection that works very well for many people. You know, I've listened to Cameron talk a lot and Justin Rigney talk a lot and I've spent some time with Pat Nolan and, you know, a lot of these guys are, are phenomenal at it. But I think you have to put in so many hours to be phenomenal at any part of dog training. Mm. And, and that's, that could be literally markers. It could be 10,000 hours of you know, detection, 10,000 hours of focused heel work. It's not how many hours of dog training total you put in. Like You got to have a lot of reps on each individual part that you want to teach and be good at. And I might need more training in that system of detection, if that were what I would want to do. But for me right now, it wasn't as efficient as what I'm already doing, kind of what Tar Heel's doing with the direct reward system. Mm -hmm. And to overlay that indirect reward delivery at the end, it went really smoothly and let me still stay in a, my efficient direct reward system of training. And that could just be because that's where I have practice of training several hundred dogs in that system. So I'm a lot more fluid at it. And that's the biggest thing for me is like, if you're going to teach people something like you should have a lot of repetitions in that thing and not be like, well, I did this once and it worked great. So you should do it too. <laughs> yeah. um, so I say like, you know, if I were to maybe go further down that path of trying to teach indirect detection reward from the beginning, kind of that indirect system, I would want to go and spend some more time with people that do that really well. Yep. Yeah, good call. Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious, mate. So you have then the ability with your dogs when they're finished to reward at the source as well as indirectly back to the handler. And you say it's because of that statement of work that the military contacts require that they're rewarded back to the handler. Do they then continue to reward both at source and at the handler? Or once you hand over to them, their SOPs is that they always are an indirect reward back to the handler? They'll continue to do both, okay. um, but mainly like with some of the bomb dogs, they like to reward back at the handler more often, or they definitely want to have that ability and see it. I do some labs that do like handling detection. So you can push them out to a distance and direct them to an area and have them search and then indicate to whatever might be there or continue to search on until directed elsewhere by the handler. And you know, when you have a, a dog searching a car 200 yards away from you, it just makes sense to have that, you know, quick yes over a radio caller or, mm -hmm. you know, a silent whistle where the dog comes back to you and can be rewarded instead of, you know, walking across all that area to up to the dog. So yeah, um, absolutely. for that, like it, at least 
in the deployment sense, it's kind of necessary to have. Yeah, absolutely. I think I've told the story a few times on the podcast, but one of the best bomb dogs I ever saw was like in real life was a civilian. He was actually an Australian guy working for the ODA in Afghanistan. He was a civilian sort of contracted to them and he would find a lot of bombs, but he actually never even let his dog indicate on the bomb. He's like, as soon as I see my dog working a, a scent cone, I call it back and I reinforce it for simply that because we don't have an EOD tech. <laughs> so it's like, I don't need him to tell me where it is. If there's one at all, we're finding a whole nother route. Mm. And so I think that that, like that actual, it, I think some dog trainers get kind of caught up in the semantics of how we're going to teach it when it's really relevant to how the end user is going to use it. More important, I think. Well, I know it's a civilian process with Noseworks, but that's the premises on what Noseworks works on. It's it's understanding how your dog behaves in when it's in odor, mm. you know, and as soon as the dog is what you consider indicating, you can call an alert out immediately. Yeah. That's huge. You know, with everything, I believe in training the dogs in the environment and in the context that they need to perform in. Mm. And, you know, I don't really care what you know, your video of the early process of training looks like, I just want to see the dogs at the end and, you know, however you got there, as long as it looks really good and it was efficient, you know, if it took you eight years of positive reinforcement only to get something really good, like that, I'm not that interested. Yeah. Um, I want to see, I want to see the dog work in the environment that it needs to, and I want to see it perform. So for me, context of where the dog is working and how you're going to work it is everything. Yeah, totally. Mm. I think that's a rabbit's warren we could go down and, Absolutely. and spend a lot of time down there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Hey, mate, thanks so much for making the time to come on the show. Like I said, I've been a secret sort of fan of yours from a distance. I think that from the from the first time I saw you work your own dog, and I don't know if you remember when we hung out that day, uh, you did a bit of tracking with Fury and his muzzle on, and I was like, hey, he's a PSA dog. Why are you teaching him that? And you're just like, just because it can be done. And yep. I was like, I like oh. it. <laughs> I, was mm. like, I was like, I really like this dude. <laughs> yeah, pushing I boundaries. Like, I like it. And uh, anyway, mate, so I've been stalking yeah. you for a few years. And um, I, once again, like, I really appreciate how much effort you put into your craft. And I think that people should be paying more attention to you. I think that you're going to be a, a force to be reckoned with in the future. So there's me blowing more smoke mm. up your ass. I'm going to end it there. Congratulations. How can people uh, get in contact you. with you? What events that. have you got going on? What's what's going on in your world? Yeah, like I said, next weekend, I'm going to be in Jersey decoying a PSA trial up there. And I'll be showing my dog. And then I'll be a couple weeks after that at the state line trial in Pennsylvania, again, decoying and showing my dog. And then a couple weeks after that, I'll be in Florida decoying, showing my dog. I'm going to try and show him a few more times this year and maybe finish this level three thing, hopefully. That'd be nice. Um, and then, uh, yeah, you can find me at Tar Heel Canine. My email is on the website if you have any questions there. And on social media, I'm just Ben Lipinski on Facebook or... Uh, Instagram is Blepin14. Blepin14. Still an old handle from, yeah. Hey, so last year before the world collapsed, you were running like civilian seminars, right, of your own for decoying skills and that sort of thing? Yeah. Any of those yeah. on the horizon? Um, no, nothing Nothing coming up. I haven't been I haven't been scheduling much this year just with travel stuff. And, yeah, uh, it's been a weird year you know, for that COVID, sort of stuff. So, but if people, if people um, want to get you out, they, they can get in contact with you about that, right? Yeah, just send me a message, reach out, and we'll figure something out. You know? Perfect. All right. Hey, thanks again, man. I really appreciate yeah, you doing thanks, it. Yeah, thanks, Ben. Yeah, guys, this was awesome. Thanks for having me on. I'm a big fan of the show. My pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you.
That's it for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, please like, rate, share, subscribe, and do that through whatever subscription service you download us from. Be specific. Tell us exactly what you like about us. The way I told Ben that he like, I like the way that he made his dog track in a muzzle, even though he was never mm. going to need to do that. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is in Patreon. A few bucks a month gets you an extra episode a month. And if you want to rep some cool merch, you can get that through Teespring. We've got some new stuff coming out in there. Zoe has done us up a new design that's got to go into there. Yes. And if you want to get in contact with us, the best way, if you want training info, is group source that through the discussion group. It's the Canon Paradigm discussion group on Facebook. Or if it's of a personal nature, you can get in contact with us via email. We are info at thecanonparadigm.com. That's it. Glenn, music. Uh-oh.